Alright y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Fun counter guy, thanks for stopping by. Back in the early 1990s, I was listening to the legendary Vanderbilt University radio station, WRVU, and this Latin music program was on. There was some interesting stuff, but in time, on came an older song with a sound and spirit that captured my fascination and triggered an obsession I still haven't quite gotten over. I called the station, and in between the DJ's limited English and my blubbering, I thought the song I was hearing was called Tito Puente, though who the artist was I wasn't able to ascertain. I hopped in the car that very moment and headed to Tower Records, the only record store open that late in the evening. Now, keep in mind, I only ran to Tower twice in my life because I thought that it was a little on the expensive side. Nonetheless, I asked the first employee I could find if he knew of a song called Tito Puente. He ran his fingers through his messy Dylan-esque hair and offered... Well, we have a singer or somebody up in jazz named Tito Puente. Come to find out, the kid was right as to what I was after, whom which would become my favorite musical artist of all time. In case you didn't know, Tito Puente was a band leader, composer, and musician, chiefly known for his work in the Afro-Cuban genre. His song, Oyo Como Va, would become a rock and roll classic when it was covered by Santana. And eventually, El Rey de Mambo, the king of the mambo, would appear as himself on The Cosby Show, The Simpsons, and the films The Mambo Kings and Radio Days. My guest back by the woodpile today has written one of the few books out there on Tito Puente. Jim Payne is a musician himself, having worked with Modesky, Martin and Wood, James Taylor, Edgar Winter, and the JB's, James Brown's band. In addition to have written and produced many other books and videos, Payne is also a teacher at the Berklee College of Music. Jim gave us some of his time to tell not only about the late Puente Stellar career and their friendship together, but also on other topics in earshot of the Masters Timbales. My first thing, I guess, is more of an observation. When I meet Tito Puente fans, they adore him. What's your theory on that? Oh, boy. Well, you know, he had it kind of all together in, in that, uh, you know, his, his music was very worked out, and he, you know, had spent many years learning his trade. He, he, as you probably know, having read the, the book, Tito Puente, King of Latin Music, that you know, he spent time uh, studying the piano when he was little. Uh, he spent time uh, studying the drum set as well, and he even got into the uh, saxophone mm-hmm. when he was in Navy. So anyway, his his music was very kind of worked out and well thought out, and he had a, you know some really good hits. Plus, he was a dancer and really knew where the dance thing was at. He put all that together with a guy who really enjoyed entertaining. He had that uh, kind of that charisma, you know, like if. You know, you see somebody like, uh, well, uh, if you remember, like you see Fats Domino at the piano, it's just he looks out at the audience and smiles, and everybody's like, yeah, this is great. <laughs> I would see Tito, I went, went to see one show at the Blue Note in New York, and the band played and stuff happened, you know, and then Tito came out, and everybody just, he looked at the audience and smiled, and he has such a very, sort of an honest, uh, communicating, uh, you know, positive attitude that people just... Uh, is infectious, you know. I mean, he had that that charisma. You know, that a lot of entertainers are good, but they don't have that. And I don't know really how to explain it. You know, how to how to say, well, study this and you'll get it. I, mean, I don't know, but he played so 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 many gigs and all through his, his life that he was just a pro. You know. Yeah, I think there's a video on YouTube. I think of Audrey's one of her, her birthdays. 
and it, it may be just be a few months before his death, Tito's death, but he just looks like a child up on the stage. <laughs> he, he's so happy, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I really feel that that uh, that is genuine. You know, I mean, he's you know he's a performer, he's a businessman. He was he was very sharp with all of that. But it seems when he got on stage, that was his real uh, world. You know, that was the world that he loved, and he did everything to to uh, make that happen. How did you personally discover his music and, of course, eventually get to work with him? I moved to New York in my 20s, and I was living in, uh, in the East Village in kind of a, a basement apartment. They call it a garden apartment. You know, I was like, I'm being a drummer. It's like I'm always living in the basement. At least I was until recently. Mm-hmm. Well, in the last quite a while ago, I got my, my uh, living situation more together. But <laughs> down in that basement, there was a Latin social club right next to me. And the garden apartment, that, that meant that there was actually a window. So there was a window out back, and there was a window in, in the other apartment in front, which was a Latin social club. And they used to play Latin music, you know, pretty seriously. And nobody seemed to mind my drumming either, so it was a great spot to be in. But somehow I got a hold of uh, a, that record, Puente and Percussion. several uh, editions but that was the one that I had I would just play that over and over I was just sort of fascinated by you know what what's going on here I came out of you know the blues and rock and roll mm-hmm. and then got into jazz and got into uh, you know soul music and and funky music and Latin was kind of on the on the, on the outside of my experience but when I lived in the East Village I started hearing a lot more of it and when I got that particular record you know, I played that record over and over and over again, you know. And I didn't really know what it was, but it was just really, it turned me on. The story of it is that he, uh, Tito wanted to record an all-percussion record, and uh, George Goldner, who was the record company who, you know, was big in rock and roll as well. George Goldner produced uh, many, many records. And back in the 50s and 60s, Tito kept bugging him, saying, hey, I want to do this, I want to do this. And nobody had really done that kind of a thing, you know. No horns, no piano. And uh, finally, the George Goldner said, okay, uh, you can have the studio at midnight, you know. Mm-hmm. So Tito said, fine. So he went in there with, with Mongo, and I think it was uh, Bobby Rodriguez, and uh, was it Potato, uh, Willie Bobo, Anyway, it's about four or five guys just did this amazing record. You know, I, I started working out, get the basics of it and stuff. And I had written several books uh, on R&B and funk, which was really my, my, my niche, kind of. You know, I have this book called Give the Drummer Some, uh, which is biographies of 26 different R&B drummers, you know, from guys that played in New Orleans all the way through, uh, you know, the guys in Stax in Memphis and then 
Al Jackson Jr. and Roger Hawkins uh, down in Muscle Shoals and a lot of the drummers that played with James Brown. And so I wrote that book. I had an idea. I wanted to learn more and more about Latin music. And I thought, well, hey, if I write a book about it, then I've got to learn a lot more about it. Sort of forced myself. And uh, so I was fortunate that I knew uh, a woman named Ina Ditka, who was uh, Tito's agent at that time. I went to a, a New Year's Eve gig, actually, uh, with her. And, and then I met Tito. And I had been thinking about this book and stuff. And it was kind of the right time, I think. He was getting a little older. And he kind of felt like, you know, he should sort of pass on some of the things that, that he had learned, you know. So he was into it. And then, uh, you know, I went over to his place in, in Tapan, which is on the other side of the uh, the Hudson River on, on the west side, pretty near Manhattan. And uh, I went over there and I had a little recorder and he, he called his wife Margie out and said, hey, this, this guy has a recorder here, you know, what's happening? <laughs> so he was kind of a little... Uh, apprehensive at first you know but then we, I mean we were both drummers and we, we hit it off and uh, after that it was great you know then I'd, I'd come over and we'd talk and we'd hang out I'd go to lunch with him and uh, you know really got to know him and I would give him the various drafts of, of the book the first book actually that I did was called Drumming with a Mambo King it's now out of print but I'm going to get it back both digital and as a print on demand that book has a lot of instructional stuff about playing timbales and transferring that to drum set and also uh, it has a, a lot of his original tunes about 10 of his songs and uh, Jose Madera who was his uh, musical director at that point the, tim the timbalero uh, he wrote out the charts for me which was great so the real latin charts for those tunes and with the, with the uh, music you can really get into it but part of that book about half of that book was instructional mm -hmm. I, I notated some of his solos and we can get into that question that you had about that mm -hmm. a little later the first part was really a history of, of afro-cuban music and a biography of tito i wanted to do a, a complete you know full-length biography of tito but that just never seemed to pass in terms of all the hassles of business stuff and whatever but the first part of that book then became reissued as the book Tito Puente King of Latin Music which is what kind of we're, we're dealing with today and also in that book is a DVD which is a great uh, interview with Tito uh, that we did and we went to his club people love our rhythms and that's what they dance to the percussion the rhythm they don't dance for flute player or violin player they dance to the conga drum the bongo drum, the cowbell, the, the timbales, you know, that, that's what people really dance to. So that's why the music is becoming very, very, very popular and exciting. We've talked briefly about his history. We don't want to go into the whole thing because I know it's a lot. And plus, people can just read your book. Well, I, he was born in New York. You know, he's of Puerto Rican parents who, who came from Puerto Rico. He ended up on the Upper uh, East Side in Spanish Harlem. You know, I guess his parents were you know, somewhat positive about his musical. So as I, as I mentioned, they, he took music lessons for like 25 cents or something. He started with piano and then uh, he got into the drum set and then he studied rudiments and a uh, regular drum set, which is kind of amazing with him. He kind of crossed the borders, you know, he wasn't just a sort of a, a guy playing Latin music by ear, you know. He, he studied the piano, he learned how to read music, read drum music. Eventually, he went to Juilliard. They took some courses, some kind of a, a you know extension courses, or something to learn about. I think Schoenberg, you know, the, the serial system of very advanced, you know, modern classical stuff, which he eventually decided wasn't his thing. But 
he was always out there, you know, really becoming uh, serious about what he was doing. He knew that if you wanted to make a living as a drummer in Manhattan at that time, you had to be able to play shows. And just looking over the book here as I was preparing for this uh, this podcast, it was like there was a lot going on in New York then, you know. I mean, sure. I, probably in every city in terms of clubs here, clubs there, you know, the Cubano, blah, the, you know, the Palladium, all there was like, and hotels, there was a lot more gigs. But in order to survive, they wouldn't just play Latin music, they'd open the show with whatever, you know, it could be waltz, it could be various different kinds of music. He was able to do that. Yeah, one thing that maybe I didn't realize until I read your book, and I, of course it seems obvious now, but, you know, he and his band were playing for the dancers more than anybody, people who came out to dance on a Friday or Saturday night, you know. And Absolutely. That's different than how rock and roll or, or any other genre is not thinking about the dancer so much, you know. <laughs> Yeah, in fact, he and his sister took dance lessons and became a dance team, like sort of a, you know, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers thing. You know, they they like them, so they actually, you know, did gigs as a, as a dance team. And he was really seriously into dancing, and then apparently he had a bad bicycle accident, and which kind of curtailed his sports. He was also into sports, and then he got, you know, seriously focused on his music. It's an interesting point. You know, where is the dividing line between dance music? If it's non-dance music, what do you call it? Right. You tell me, I don't know. As a DJ, you know, I'm very aware of certain breaks or silences in a song that dancers hate. Very interesting point. I, I playing several gigs out here in California after I moved out here from New York about three years ago. And, uh, I mean, I grew up playing rock and funk and, you know, got into jazz and, you know, did, played with the J.B. Horns from the James Brown Band and... Did a lot of funky type gigs, and that's, I love it. I also love jazz, you know, I played a lot of jazz gigs as well. So where does, uh, you know, dance music end and jazz begin? You know what I mean? Right, it's sort of like, sure. it's, it's, a, it's a fun thing. I, I try to cross both genres, and I don't look, you know, sometimes, you know, it seems like it's gotten split up, you know, of bebop, and then it became sort of a part of the classical institution, and complicated stuff, you know, uh, different time signatures, and... Uh, I don't think I've ever seen anybody dance to bebop, so I think you're right. That might have been where it really split. One thing about his history that I did want to touch on is one of the things I found fascinating was when he was at the Palladium, and there was this rivalry between the two Titos, I guess they called it. Uh, so tell folks about that that aren't familiar with it. Tito Rodriguez was actually, uh, you know, more popular than, than Tito Puente at the time. And uh, Tito was kind of the second to, to him, and they had this big rivalry going. Uh, the Palladium, of course, was was the center of uh, of Latin dance music in New York, and I think it was 53rd Street and Broadway. The owner decided to try to get more people in there to dance and bring down the people from Harlem, bring down the Afro-Americans, and they tried it out, and it worked really well, and everybody was, you know, dancing up a storm and having a good time. You know, Tito's pretty pretty competitive. One story about that is just that his... Uh, that Margie, his, his wife, who I met, who was a great, great person, really helped me a lot with the book. And uh, 
she went there because Tito Rodriguez was a, uh, you know, matinee I or whatever. Somehow in the backstage, she started talking to Tito Puente, and before you knew it, they were going out. So, so I guess Tito Puente won out in the yeah. end. When I got into writing this book, I decided I had to go to Cuba, so I went down there to do research on the on the music and had some contacts and was able to study with some cats down there and uh, really fantastic experience. And I went to a bunch of clubs down there, the, the, the you know the famous flamingo and everything. Mm-hmm. Really learned how serious they are about music down there and being a big part of their culture. You know, if you have an aptitude and interest in music and you do well. You know, you can go to college and study music for, mm. for and the government pays for it. Right. And even uh, they go beyond that, you know, to the graduate school, they study classical music. So you'll find a guy on the street playing and it turns out, you know, he can play uh, marimba, vibes, piano, you know, he can play classical percussion. And then if you want to, you know, you join a band and the band is like a accepted employment, you know, and you get, you get paid by the government, mm. you know, to, to play. And all they do is rehearse all day, you know. So that's why their stuff is so tight. Well, that's interesting. You mentioned that. I was going to bring that up. That Afro-Cuban music or jazz or whatever you want to call it, Cuba, has had a tense relationship with the Castro regime. I mean, there was a time that that stuff was banned, as what I understand, like from Arturo Sandoval and uh, Paquito de Rivera. When you were down there, did they mention those years when they weren't allowed to play, or no, they did not. Of course, you know Arturo and a lot of guys. All they wanted to do was leave. In fact, a couple of guys that I knew down there did, had left. But being there, I mean, going around to the places that I went to, you know, pretty well-known clubs, and and those clubs were surviving on, on, on tourist money, you know, a lot. So they would in, entice you to come to them. They were, the bands were fantastic. They had so much preparation. It was like going to a James Brown show, you know, in terms of the stops, the breaks. And, My God, what happened? All of a sudden, you know, they were into another song. And right. it was just it was just fantastic. You know... Generally, of course, the the people were were not happy, you know, down there. I mean, mm. they wanted to leave, they wanted to get out, they wanted to find a way, and then it kind of latched onto me. In fact, that you know, it was a lot of communication after I'd left, you know, trying to get a toehold to to leave, you know, and mm. well, because they they weren't happy, but also because the rest of the world is out there, you know, and the rest of the music world is out there, and they're all listening to uh, American radio and stuff, and you know, that's. That has influenced a lot, uh, their music, but they still, of course, keep the serious Afro-Cuban roots and what's ever developed out of that. If I were to name my favorite Tito Puente track, I'd have to go with this one, a Gozar Tembero. In the last 60 seconds of this track is my favorite capture of Puente's timbali playing. I asked Jim, as a percussionist, to dissect this section for us. There were two things that I, I thought were very interesting about that solo. 
and you know it's it's very organized as i was mentioning before tito writes the charts and he has the bars figured out tito doesn't do stuff kind of just ad lib until he's finished and then the next guy happens it's part of the chart you'll always find his solos and i transcribed many of them in my original book tito puente's drumming with the mambo king they're always you know in the arrangement in other words a specific number of bars you know usually eight sixteen whatever but it goes along with the music that particular solo you know it starts off with the singing for, for two bars and tito plays the timbales for two bars then that repeats singing for two bars timbales for two bars then tito plays eight bars by himself and then we have the horns are coming in for two bars and tito's playing for two bars and then that happens three times so it's you know it's very specific how how this how it works out now what he plays within that is like the magic of the whole thing absolutely the way i listen to it it's in the two three clave which is a one two three four one That's kind of the overall, you know, kind of framework of, of Latin music. You know, people are familiar with the 3-2 the clave, which is the... Like the, the Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley, yeah. Actually, today, and, and most of the stuff that I hear out of Cuba, and the, you know, the more popular type stuff, is in the 2-3 clave. It's just kind of how you organize the thing. And uh, that particular uh, song is in the two, three. You can tell when you listen to the percussion instruments as to what parts they're playing. A lot of the percussion in, in Afro-Cuban is, is very specific. The bell plays this pattern, you know, and the congas play that pattern, uh, and the bongos play this pattern. And not to say there isn't some improvisation, but they kind of stick to the same groove. When they solo, they just take the lid off completely, you know, and it just go bananas. And now this tune that had Two, two things in it that I thought were interesting at the end of this tune. One was a quote, the salt peanuts, which is a do baba, do baba, which is an old Dizzy Gillespie. Nobody really knows who started it. You know, some people say it was, it was done before Dizzy, but he made like a, a very popular recording of it. Salt peanuts, salt peanuts. Salt peanuts, salt peanuts. And of course, Dizzy he had Chano Pozo when he was into Afro-Cuban music. That little quote you find in various any solo, any jazz player be playing. All of a sudden, you'll hear do da da do da da, boo ba da That's what they call salt peanuts. So Tito used that quote in that solo. You're a teacher, correct? That's right. You know, I've taught many, many years uh, when I was in New York, various drum schools and stuff. Uh, and uh, then I got together with Berkeley 
a school of music and college of music in Boston. And so I started teaching with them. They have a very large online program, probably the biggest. In fact, I took a, a correspondence course from them way back when I was in my 30s and uh, you know learned a lot about uh, arranging and stuff. When I wrote down the the answers and mailed them back, you know, somebody put a red mark on them and sent them back to me. But now they have <laughs> over a hundred, I think, 150 online courses, and so I'm teaching the R&B and funk drums for them. And uh, it's a it's a regular college type course, you know, it's a, a 12 week course. It's all composed of various videos that I made, you know, as I said, several drum instruction books uh, and other materials, tracks that I put together without drums and. And the students go through them every week. And in fact, now I have my own private course that I'm doing. And I get a lot of students that I have taught in Berkeley for a little more want to continue with it. And I'm just actually launching my website in the next week, all focused on the teaching. And since I moved out of New York, I realized that if you have a good internet connection, you could be anywhere. And so I'm teaching here in Monterey, California. And uh, it works great. I mean, it's a, it's a long process to put the course together. But you have like song examples, you have these different tracks, and then students then video themselves playing to these tracks without drums, usually two tracks per, per lesson. And they send me the videos, I look at them, and I comment on them, I talk about them, and then we get together, we do Skype sessions or FaceTime. I found that when I was in New York, I would teach privately, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, and then I, I started the Berkeley thing about three years ago, and some of the Berkeley guys would come to New York to have, I had this program called Week on the Scene, which was we'd go around and and go to the clubs and stuff and I would meet students that I had taught and I really thought I knew them even better than the students that I taught you know one-on-one -on -one. Huh. It, it really works it really works well I mean it, you have to have of course a committed student I mean you know they got to do the work but you you help them and uh, oh it's great I love it and now I have students basically from all over the world I mean you know you name it Taiwan you know China um, all Europe and uh, you know the Faroe Islands. I didn't even know where they were. You know, so <laughs> off of Iceland. You know, so it's really cool. You know, I, I was going to mention. You know, there's a big connection between Latin music and and funk music. You know, I came out here to the West Coast basically back in the early 80s to kind of get out of New York. I was living outside of San Francisco, and one of the reasons I came out of here because I considered it kind of the home of, of funk. You know, in a way, the, the international communities in, in LA and in San Francisco were kind of a melting, mixing ground for various types of musical cultures. Certainly, you know, blues, soul music, and then, you know, Afro-Cuban music, you know, you have Santana out of, out of San Francisco, you have Tower of Power. Same thing in L.A., you have various groups that kind of bring these things together. And uh, it was really a, a cultural, uh, educational ground and a fertile ground for, for new music. In terms of the, the funk thing, you know, talking about James Brown and, well, soul music and Otis Redding and all that as well. But specifically, the more kind of rhythmical stuff there's a tremendous cross-pollinization between Afro-Cuban music and funk. And a lot of that was informed by listening to Afro-Cuban music, especially with the, the right-hand patterns of the cascara on the cowbell, uh, kind of transferred over to the hi-hat in the drum set. 
and the various bass drum patterns, clave that I was talking about, and that that whole thing of grouping in threes, it's right there, and in, in funk music, and it's a, you know, it comes from Afro-Cuban music, and, and it's like a, it's sort of the next step, you know, really after you play blues, and then you play sort of pretty straight-ahead soul music, where it's all about grooving, just on a two and four basically, then you kind of want to break it up and get a little more into it. Tower of Power, you can look at Soul Tenation. I, I When I first heard that, I, I was at a party. I stood by the record player, just kind of played it over and over again. What is happening, you know? And so that was the case of really breaking up everything and playing that right hand on the, on the hi-hat with more of a Latin feel. Specifically with, with Clyde, still feel on drums, and uh, also uh, Jabo Starks, he, you know, brought those things to that music. You've gotten to know Clyde, right? Yes, in fact, I just talked to him the other day, he had his birthday. Uh, is he uh, still playing the drums, I assume? Or? He's, he's playing some drums, yeah, he's, he's a little bit, he's got some medical problems, mm -hmm. but he does still play. Amazing man, you know, when you, very gracious, very gentlemanly, like just like Tito, you know, really a very wise person. That was the thing with Tito. You could tell he's been through so much, you know, mm -hmm. that when you go through all that, you kind of come out okay, and then you sort of know what's going on, you know, in the same way with, with Clyde Stubblefield. He, they went through so much, all, you know, 300 and some one-nighters with James Brown, traveling every night, and, you know, James was not easy to work for, mm -hmm. and uh, Jabbo, the other drummer that played with him a lot, used to drive the bus between the gigs as well as play the gigs. These guys have been through so much that they understand what's going on, you know, and, and they come out loving life, you know, and really appreciating it, you know. I talked to Clyde, he's like, well, how you doing? He says, well, I get up in the morning and, you know, I put my foot on the floor and I stand up and I say, yeah, all right, this is cool. You know? so, basic stuff that we forget about, you know, well, wait a minute, man, like we're, we're living and breathing and, you know, the sun's out, this kind of thing, you know, we, we forget about it. and. Uh, you know, Clyde has that kind of a positive uh, vibe, and, and, and Tito too. You know, I mean, Tito. You know, with that, Tito has a good time. You know, not he works his butt off, but he has a good time. You know, so uh, I learned a lot, a lot working with Tito in that in that respect. You know, sort of how to how to deal with life and how to not get down about one thing because the next day is another day. You know, when you get into a funk, it's hard to get out of it. You know, unless you say, "Well, wait a minute, this is like." You know, what happened? This was an hour or something. Or maybe I've lost six hours, whatever, you know. Forget about it, you know. Start again tomorrow. In closing, Jim offered a few more personal stories from his time shared with Tito Puente before the musician's death in 2000. We were talking about modern recording. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he was recording some, some records at the time, and... You know, we said we got in there and they had, you know, a whole band with warrants and everything. It was probably like 20 microphones or five or six on the drum. You know, it was like mm -hmm. huge. Mm -hmm. And they had 48 tracks or whatever, you know. And they went in to mix the record afterwards. Mm -hmm. And he was telling me, you know, he doesn't want to have anything to do with the mix. He says, 
He says they got so many channels and when they're in the mix that they're all mixed up, which was exactly it. You know, I mean, I've had that same experience. You really have to have your head totally together and it's just there's so many options. Whereas, you know, when you went in before with a four track machine or something, it was just, you did it, you did the best you could, got the best sound and boom, it was done. time I went to, with him, actually when we did the, the DVD for the book, I was going to help him, we were going to load up and everything, went into his his, uh, his garage and he probably had like 20 sets of timbales in his garage, plus pianos and all sorts of stuff. He also got a huge Xerox machine when his bass player, Bobby Rodriguez, uh, was losing his sight and couldn't see very well. Tito bought a special machine so that when he copied his his music that Bobby could read it, which is pretty touching. You mean like enlarged it? Yeah, but he had like all these, you know, he had gold timbales, he had timbales that were, you know, of course he was, you know, were made for him and everything, all types of different things, and he probably had about 20 sets, and he showed me these timbales that he had, that had like nude women on them. He said, Margie didn't go for that, so he, he couldn't take those out anymore. I guess he played them on a few gigs, but he says, you know, I'm supposed to be a role model. You know, so I guess that's not really cool. He didn't use them that much. And well, then we went and did the video shoot, right? That was a long afternoon, you know, over at his club uh, in, in City Island. And then after that, he had a, he had a roadie that's been with him for many years. He, the roadie showed up and, and helped him get stuff into his car. After the full day of that, he was going to do a concert at Carnegie Hall. That's the way he, he lived, you know, he just lived for the music. If you'd like to contact Jim Payne, check out a listing of his books and videos, or even take some drum lessons from him, check out his website, funkydrummer.com. That's funkydrummer.com. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. And if you'd like to see a list of former episodes of In the Corner, Back with the Woodpile, go to spuncounterguy.com and click on the pictures of piles of wood with chairs in front. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store, and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. Mm-hmm.